We will never give up. We will never give in. We will keep on fighting until we win. Si se puede. Si se puede. Cook organized the first black newspaper guild in the country, stood up to Joseph McCarthy, and did some groundbreaking investigative reporting. She lived from 1901 to the year 2000. But most people don't know who she is. In June of 1990, hundreds of striking janitors and supporters peacefully demonstrated in Century City, Los Angeles. Police in riot gear attacked, injuring hundreds of people. The violent encounter would mark a turning point in the janitor's fight for justice. Then, whose voices and stories have been lost because they were pushed out of journalism altogether? Marvell Cook, a groundbreaking black woman journalist who reported on labor in the 1940s and organized a union with a newspaper guild in the 1930s, is one of countless storytellers nearly forgotten by history because they were too radical. Lewis Raven Wallace talks to playwright Jacqueline Lawton and editor Carla Murphy about their experiences as black women rediscovering Cook's story. Our report comes from The View from Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. It features stories of marginalized and oppressed people who have shaped journalism in the U.S. The podcast focuses on the troubled history of objectivity and how it's been used to gatekeep and exclude people of color, queer and trans people, and people organizing for their labor rights and communities. It's created and hosted by Lewis Raven Wallace, and I strongly recommend it. To subscribe, just search for The View From Somewhere. On this week's Labor History in Two... The year was 1934. That was the day 1,400 workers at the Milwaukee Electric Railway and Light Company launched a four-day strike. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's the show. The Building Service Employees International Union was founded in 1921 by flat janitors in Chicago to organize some of the nation's most exploited workers. The union grew and its members won living wages, benefits, and respect. In recent decades, however, these gains were lost. Janitors nationwide have had to stand together to reorganize their industry. In the 1970s, the structure of the building service industry began to change. Building owners were not just people that lived in a local town, but they were national companies. And a handful of big building owners owned buildings all over the country. Building owners, once the direct employers of janitors, cut costs and ducked responsibility by contracting work out to cleaning companies. Cleaning contractors, in turn, transformed full-time union jobs into part-time ones, cut health care and benefits, and spread their reach into non-union suburbs. Between 1964 and 1984, union density in the building service industry fell from 40 to 10 percent. In some cities, wages dropped by as much as 50 percent. As contractors consolidated, union locals found themselves isolated, and janitors themselves worked alone for hours on end. 
Undocumented immigrants feared not only losing their jobs, but also deportation if they spoke out about working conditions. Rosa Ayala knew how this isolation affected her fellow workers. In 1985, janitors at Mellon Bank in Pittsburgh refused to accept yet another cut in wages. Building managers locked them out of their jobs through the long winter. The fight was a wake-up call that the union would have to reorganize the building service industry. Because cleaning contractors and their employees could be replaced every 30 days, holding elections under the National Labor Relations Act would be ineffective new organizing strategies were needed. The Justice for Janitors campaign was born. A national organizing campaign with the goal of helping workers lift themselves and their families out of poverty. Over the next five years, 35,000 building service workers were unionized. City after city, we built coalitions with clergy, with community groups, with politicians. If Dr. King and Cesar Chavez were alive today, they would be marching. We march in their spirit to keep their dreams alive. Like the farm workers 30 years before, Justice for Janitors brought national attention to their cause. In June of 1990, hundreds of striking janitors and supporters peacefully demonstrated in Century City, Los Angeles, a center of entertainment and international finance. Police in riot gear attacked the crowd, injuring hundreds of people. The violent encounter would mark a turning point in the janitor's fight for justice. Se abrió una puerta de una lucha por justicia, respeto y dignidad. Dije, no voy a descansar hasta demostrar junto con mis compañeros que nosotros sí podemos, porque sí se puede. Janitors across the country joined together setting their contracts to expire at the same time, targeting common employers and drawing up master contracts. Workers went on strike in New York, California, and Chicago. Janitors from New Jersey to Denver pledged to honor picket lines. From day one of the strike, it was like no strike that any of us have ever seen before. Now 100,000 strong, building service workers across the country were prepared to bargain as one big union. The relationship between workers and employers was transformed. Workers made common demands and won victories they had never imagined were possible. In April of 2000, janitors nationwide settled contracts, guaranteeing pay increases ranging from 25 to 50 percent. Full-time work, health insurance, paid leave, and the right to organize. Inspired by this victory, workers in new cities and suburbs continue the struggle. We will never give up. 
We will never give in. We will keep on fighting until we win. Si se puede! Si se puede! This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Ramona Martinez, the producer. This podcast is serialized, so if you like what you hear today, go back and listen from the start. One quick thing before you dive in. We're currently fundraising to get to the end of our season, and we need you to chip in. Check out viewfromsomewhere.com to make a donation. You can even get a gorgeous poster of Marvell Cook or Ida B. Wells, created by our in-house artist, Billy D. And we have events in L.A. on December 7th and Oakland on December 11th. The details are at viewfromsomewhere.com. Marvell Cook was at home in New York when she got the call. The United States Senate Subcommittee on Investigations, chaired by Senator Joseph McCarthy, yeah, that guy, wanted her to testify. I remember spending that weekend getting as beautiful as I know how to get, getting a very conservative but beautiful dress out to wear. I felt so sorry for my husband. Here he is, married to this girl who looked like she was going to be a society somebody, and she gets herself in all this mess. She was a society lady in a way. She was the fair-skinned daughter of radical black socialists from Mankato, Minnesota. She was a communist and an investigative journalist. She was a close friend of Paul Robeson and had worked for W.E.B. Du Bois. Marvell Cook was amazing. The McCarthy hearings, as you might remember, eventually became infamous for targeting journalists and entertainers, accusing them of communist ties. Unless we make sure that there is no infiltration of our government, then just as certain as you sit there, in the period of our lives, you will see a red world. That fall of 1953, she showed up dressed to the nines to talk before the all-white, all-male Senate committee. She took the fifth, though she deigned to answer a couple of questions. He said, where were you born? And I said, oh, I was born in Minnesota, across the St. Croix River from where Senator McCarthy comes. But we're not all the same out that way. (laughs) It just came out like that. And the place just howled, you know. So that's Marvell Cook, the subject of our episode today. And this is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Lewis Raven Wallace. We recover the stories of marginalized journalists who have pushed back on mainstream objectivity and created their own ways of telling true stories. On the last episode, we heard about Sandy Nelson, a lesbian socialist who waged a seven-year legal battle for the right of journalists to participate in protest. And we learned about the first journalist I could find who lost his job for supposedly lacking objectivity. Like Marvell Cook, both of them were also labor organizers. So I've been learning that objectivity has been weaponized against dissenting voices, labor activists, women, queer people, people of color, 
And it makes me think about all the journalists whose careers were cut short and whose work never quite made it out to the rest of us in the world. Not just because of objectivity, but because of oppression in general. Objectivity has just been a tool of that oppression. But it's a subtle one because it gives this rational, professional line of reasoning for excluding people. Now I'm trying to find my people, the journalists who've been telling the stories that needed to be told, whether or not they could access official channels. And guess what? I'm not the only one on this search. I'm particularly interested in what Black journalists are saying, how they're covering what is happening in our country right now. Jacqueline E. Lawton is an assistant professor in dramatic art at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and a member of the Playmakers Repertory Company. And so I, I literally Googled Black woman journalist and a lot of different people came up, but then I saw Marvell Cook and I'd never heard of her before. She's writing a play called Edges of Time, a one-woman show all about Marvell Cook. The actor, Catherine Hunter-Williams, is reading Cook's lines in this episode. Lawton was scandalized that she hadn't heard of Cook. Cook organized the first Black newspaper guild in the country, stood up to Joseph McCarthy, and did some groundbreaking investigative reporting. She lived from 1901 to the year 2000. But most people don't know who she is. After the McCarthy hearings in 1953, she never worked in journalism again. I started the play in 1963 with the Birmingham bombing. It's the loss of those four girls. And when I read the newspaper articles during that time, it covers facts and details. And it talks about how the police are wanting order. They don't want protests in the streets. They don't want a public outcry. And yet four young girls are killed in an act of racial violence. What the Black community needs is justice, not order first. And I think about how Marvell would have covered that story. We would have known about those four little girls. We would have known about their family. We would have known about the heartbreak of that community. And we would have understood why the people were taking to the streets. And then thinking that she stopped writing in the late 1950s, that meant we didn't have her voice to cover what was going on in our, our country. I learned about Cook in a conversation with Mariam Kaba at Prison Culture on Twitter, who does a lot of work resurrecting the histories of other important Black women. I want to name Mariam here because so many Black women's labor and ideas have gone into pretty much any good work I'm doing now as a white trans person. And her work uplifting other Black women is really amazing. So, back to our heroine. Marvell Cook, in the early 1900s, is living in Mankato, Minnesota. Father was a Pullman porter, and her mom was a teacher and a housekeeper. And so they meet on the train, and um, they end up falling in love. They move to uh, Minnesota. And then from there, we see a little bit of Marvell's life as a child, being the only um, black family in this um, middle-class white community um, in Minnesota, Minneapolis. She was the first black girl to go to her high school and one of the only black women at the University of Minnesota. After she finished college in 1925, she went to New York and was basically like, see ya, Minnesota. And when I saw Harlem, I thought it was the most beautiful place in the world to live, you know? <laughs> I thought, this is where I want to be. 
She started out at W.E.B. Du Bois' paper, The Crisis, the official paper of the NAACP. Du Bois had been a suitor of her mother's long ago. That's a whole other story. Point being, she found herself right at the center of Black America, the Harlem Renaissance, working and hanging out with hugely influential people like Du Bois and Richard Wright. After the crisis, she ended up getting a job at the mainstream Black paper for Harlem, the Amsterdam News, in the early 1930s. And that was where she started both her journalism and her labor organizing. The women's editor at the Amsterdam News was a college graduate. I think she went to Hunter. But I have never known anyone dumber. Not everybody who graduates from college is bright. Oh, I hated that job. But I wanted to stay in New York. She stuck it out, doing menial tasks under the women's editor, whom she said couldn't write for shit. One day, she was randomly tasked with writing some copy for the paper, and a more senior editor took notice. I wrote this filler, and he said, You wrote that? I said, Yes. And he said, You shouldn't be here as a secretary. You should be writing. So she started to get some writing assignments. But she was also frustrated that the paper didn't seem to be doing much for the community. I grew up feeling that one must do something for our people, you know? Join a crusade. I grew up in a crusading family. And here I found that here's a black paper, just following the dictates of society, not making any impression at all, not addressing the problems that faced people in this area. I wasn't happy about it. It was just a paycheck for me. It was just a paycheck, and the paycheck wasn't even good. And right around this time, she learned about a new union for journalists. People who delivered papers had organized unions before, but not the writers. I was considered a little rebellious. Tend to your work, I was told. So I did tend to my work. And it was during this period that we got organized in the Newspaper Guild. The Newspaper Guild was founded in New York in 1934. We formed a unit of the Newspaper Guild in my apartment. I had a large apartment then. We realized that we should ask the owners of the paper for recognition of the Guild. That's all we were going to ask. And just asking for recognition led to a lockout followed by a long strike. Suddenly, Cook was out picketing, getting arrested. It was not ladylike to don picket signs and march up and down. It thrilled me. I never minded getting out there on the picket line, and I enjoyed going to jail, even though I knew that the woman's editor shivered at the thought. Eventually, the owner gave in, sold the paper, and the employees got a big raise from the new boss when they were rehired. It was one of the first times in history when black workers had won their demands in a strike. And it might have been the first journalist strike ever. Now, almost nine decades later, we see journalists trying to unionize all over again, standing up to a whole new kind of consolidation and exploitation in digital media. I think about how Cook's skills as an organizer were so important to journalism back then, and how different journalism would be now if organizers and activists hadn't been pushed out so many times over.
Cook went on to a number of other firsts. She eventually left the Amsterdam News to become the first woman reporter at another black paper in New York, The People's Voice, and then later became the first black woman to work at a mainstream leftist white paper, The Daily Compass, in 1949. That was where she revisited a story she'd worked on in the 30s with activist Ella Baker. Marvel Cook's most well-known feature is about the Bronx slave market, and it covers black women who worked as housekeepers. They were called the paper bag brigade, and they it's because they carried their work, work clothes in paper bags and stood along street corners in various places in New York, and white women would hire them for um, housekeeping for the day. And so she went underground, you know, undercover basically, and worked as a housekeeper and, and, then, and then told the story in a, a six-part series. The stories were passionate and intense. I was a slave. She wrote that slave markets grew during each economic downturn. Twice, I was hired by the hour at less than the wage asked by the women of the market. Both times I went home mad. Mad for all the Negro women down through the ages who have been lashed by the stinging whip of economic oppression. Once I was approached by a predatory male who made unseemly and unmistakable advances, and I was mad all over again. She experienced being cheated, harassed, lied to, alongside other Black women who are going through that every day to survive. Woolworths on 170th Street was beginning to feel like home to me. It seemed natural to be standing there with my sister slaves, all of us with paper bags containing our work clothes under our arms. I recognized many of the people who passed. I no longer felt new, but I was not at peace. Hundreds of years of history weighed upon me, I was the slave traded for two truck horses on a Memphis street corner in 1849. I was the slave trading my brawn for a pittance on a Bronx street corner in 1949. As I stood there waiting to be bought, I lived through a century of indignity. At the end of the series, she recommended a bunch of reforms, some of which were actually implemented by the city of New York. And so I read that series and I'm thinking, what else could we have learned about our community? You know, not just injustices that happened, the hardship that happened, but also real celebrations of our community, real achievements of our community through her voice. What stories didn't we hear because Marvell Cook didn't stay in journalism? The Daily Compass ran out of money and shut down in 1952. And then in 1953, Cook and many of the other employees of the Compass were called before McCarthy's Senate committee. He was going after really anyone who might be affiliated with communism. And it had created an environment of fear, blacklisting, people ratting each other out. Jacqueline Lawton and I both took notice because Cook was being asked to snitch. Mostly she pled the fifth um, and pled the fifth with much attitude and, and conviction. By this time, I was pretty calm about McCarthy. 
I thought he was a little sleazeball, you know, and I felt so superior to him. She didn't snitch. But also, she wasn't working in journalism anymore, and The Compass was the last time she would work in journalism. Anyone affiliated with the paper had a hard time finding work, but especially her, as a Black woman in the 1950s, already facing legal segregation and discrimination. And also that she was writing at a time, she was a journalist at a time when newspapers were the way we were getting our news. Although television was slow, in the 50s, television was slowly making its way in, but as a black woman, she would not be on television. So as the news was transitioning from print to TV, just as politically she was being, you know, her politics were being weaponized against her, there was no room for her in print or in television as a black woman. And that, that's another reason that calls me to write about her and her story. So Marvell Cook organized one of the first ever strikes of editorial workers, was the first black woman in a big white paper in New York City, stood up to Joseph McCarthy, and then was almost erased from history, which I find upsetting. Yeah. Um, sorry. Listen, deep sigh, because um, this has been, I've been a journalist since at least, or officially since 2005. And this conversation has been um, consistent. This is Carla Murphy, the editorial consultant for this episode. She's a freelance journalist based in New York. So I'm not surprised, but because, you know, I think she's me in an earlier time. And I, I'm bothered that I don't, that I've never heard of her, um, that I don't know her story, that I don't know her contributions, which are massive. It makes it difficult to do this work, knowing that it's kind of like walking into a room and knowing that there are like literally like, I don't know, 500 silent people who are also walking into that room with you, but they're completely erased and gone. And that will probably happen to you too. And that will probably happen to tons of other journalists of color, to other marginalized journalists that are out there. Um, We get into this work to make a difference. And then when you get into the work, you realize that you realize your power position um, very keenly. And that calls into question, well, can I help this particular community make decisions around criminal justice reform, for example? Uh, if I don't have any power, if I'm not going to be listened to. What do you do, Carla, to kind of cope with or just be with that reality of like every time you walk into a room in the journalism world, you're, you're carrying with you all of these erased histories. How do you kind of honor that or hold that? Uh, drink a lot? No, I'm kidding. Um <laughs> <laughs> therapy, you know, get, get a good therapist. <laughs> I know I, you know what? And you know, you have to laugh to like, and laughter is a way to deal with it. Right. Um, Cause it's, it's kind of weighty and it's not on you to solve as the individual, quite frankly. Right. You can only solve these things together collectively. So I guess I'll, I'll say this. How do I cope? I think <clears throat> that's a long answer that definitely includes therapy. 
I, I think I learned to cope by stepping away from journalism for a bit, quite frankly. I learned self-care by being around writers, but not necessarily journalists. I think especially if you're a writer who does um, any kind of social justice coverage, and if you come from a marginalized community, I think that the support of the public, of say the activated community, is super, super important. Mm -hmm. I think that you need the community to be a counterweight, quite frankly, to newsroom politics. Yeah, so like tap into the community that you do have outside of the newsroom. Yeah, definitely. And get them to show their power. Because I think newsrooms react, they do. Newsrooms are quite reactive and they do react to people power. People power. Thanks for that, Carla. That's what Marvell Cook was trying to build for herself and other journalists, for herself and other Black women. She worked with civil rights legend Ella Baker in the 30s. In the 70s, she organized with the support committee for Angela Davis. There's no full-length biography of her. Just an oral history recorded in 1989 by a journalist named Kathleen Curry for the Washington Press Club Foundation. Reading the transcripts, I was intrigued but also irritated to come across this part where Curry asks Cook whether or not she could be objective because she was a communist. I think it made me a better reporter because I was interested in the conditions under which people had to work and live that would come through in the things I would write. The interviewer pushed back, almost condescending. There's a kind of vaunted rule of journalism that journalists are objective, she says in the transcript. That's right, Cook replies. That's right. Did you ever have problems being objective on any of these stories? The interviewer asked. No. I think some editors had problems with me reporting things as I saw them. Jacqueline Lawton's play about Marvell Cook, Edges of Time, will be running from April 29th to May 3rd of 2020 at Playmakers Repertory Company in Chapel Hill. That's at playmakersrep.org. A very special thanks to Katherine Hunter-Williams, who will play Marvell Cook and appeared as her on this episode. Next time on The View From Somewhere. I know in my bones that I went to Vietnam with all the answers and I left proud of my ability to understand the questions, to realize that there were, the war was, although my basic opposition to the war never changed, I could see how many shades of gray, gray they were. Two reporters who were also anti-war activists tell their stories of the Vietnam era. If you want to learn more about Marvell Cook and the First Journalism Union, check out my book, The View From Somewhere, from the University of Chicago Press. Also, I really hope to see you at my upcoming events in L.A. and the Bay Area. Those details are on our website, viewfromsomewhere.com. A big thanks to Carla Murphy, our editorial consultant, who loves air quotes almost as much as I do. I think that a lot of uh, mainstream journalists assume that if you're a black woman and you're covering, quote unquote, black topics, then that means you're quote-unquote, too close to be, quote-unquote, objective. I'm so sorry for all the air quotes, but <laughs> there's, like, just tons of problems with all that. 
And remember that smart human from episode one who said objectivity is the ideology of the status quo? That's Ramona Martinez, the producer behind all of this. Thank you so much, Ramona. You are so amazing. Aw, thank you, Louis. Our theme music is composed by Dogbotic with additional music by Poddington Bear. Our logo is by Billy D. And Roxana Bendezu of Migrant Roots Media runs our social media. All that is funded in part by our wonderful Kickstarter supporters and by you. If you'd like to help The View From Somewhere make it to the end of our season, which of course you do, go to viewfromsomewhere.com and click on the donate button. Any amount helps and thank you gifts include Billy Dee's beautiful Marvel Cook and Ida B. Wells posters, as well as signed copies of the book. You can also give us a review and some stars in the iTunes store. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Marvel Cook is like is like the forgotten sea. Who forgets an entire sea? I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1934. That was the day 1,400 workers at the Milwaukee Electric Railway and Light Company launched a four-day strike. Three unions, representing about a third of the total employees, were fighting to break the hold of the company union. The Transit and Power Company had already fired 13 workers for union activity. IBEW, Operating Engineers, and the Amalgamated Association of Street and Electric Railway Employees Union led the walkout. They demanded reinstatement of their fired co-workers. They also wanted the right to pick their own bargaining representatives and insisted the company union rescind its policy of barring strikers from membership and further employment. The walkout began early in the morning as strikers surrounded car barns, garages, and power plants. Company agents barricaded facilities with barbed wire, supplied Pullman cars for strike breakers, and posted armed guards on streetcars. Almost immediately, striker Joseph Urbanski was mowed down and seriously injured as he tried to stop a scab streetcar. By nightfall, 5,000 strikers and their supporters had blocked five transit lines. They ripped protective screens from the streetcar windows and forced scab drivers to abandon their routes. As crowds swelled to 10,000 on the second day of the strike, a little more than half of all cars were in service. More than 100 streetcars had been damaged. Socialist Mayor Daniel Hohen placed the blame squarely on the utility company. Street battles with police and scabs continued into the third day of the strike. Milwaukee's Federated Trades and Building Trades Councils threatened a general strike in the city by July 2nd if the strike was not settled. By June 30th, workers celebrated total victory when the company conceded to all of their demands. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. And even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app and pass it along. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to Lewis Raven Wallace for permission to use the report on Marvell Cook from the great podcast The View from Somewhere, 
a podcast about journalism with a purpose. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and healthy, but do keep making history and see you next time.